Good morning. My name is Jenny Webb, and it is my honor to read today's scripture. God's word is found in the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see each and every one of you. Uh, let me just take a quick poll. Who is here for the very first time? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> well, great to see you. Yes. Well, thank you all for visiting Fellowship Bible Church. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at FBC, and it's my Awesome privilege to bring God's Word to you today. Uh, I'm starting a three-week, a short three-week sermon series on the miracles of Jesus. We'll just look at a miracle today and each of the next two Sundays and see what that reveals to us about our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as Jordan alluded to, starting in September, our new interim lead pastor, Sam Shaw, will be here. I say our new, he's actually our first ever interim lead pastor. Uh, Sam Shaw will be here and will be beginning his ministry starting uh, September the 5th, and we are excited and looking forward to the leadership and uh, wisdom that he's going to bring. So if you have not already turned to Luke chapter 2, John chapter 2, I'll get the right gospel, John chapter 2, go ahead and do that. Now I mentioned that this series is uh, going to be about the miracles of Jesus, and, and that brings up a question. What is, what is a miracle? And what comes to your mind when you hear the word miracle? You know, colloquially, colloquially, that's hard for my East Texas tongue to say, colloquially, we use the word miracle to refer to things that are just very unlikely and not necessarily impossible. You know, we'll say things like, Oh, man, it was a miracle that I passed that test, or it was a miracle that I survived that uh, car accident, or come uh, February 2022, it was a miracle that the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's one I'm hoping for, I assure you. <laughs> but strictly speaking, of course, those, those things aren't actually miracles, because um, a miracle is, is, has a higher standard uh, to meet. I ran across this definition from Oxford Languages. They define miracle as a surprising and welcome event that is, not explicable to, that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. So a miracle, strictly speaking, is something that either 
supersedes or contradicts the natural laws that are in place in our universe and is for someone's good and therefore is a display of some divine intervention. Now, I ran across a very unusual miracle in church history while I was studying for this uh, sermon. There was a guy by the name of Blaine, Saint Blaine, who was a 6th century, (laughs) speaking of things hard to say, 6th century Scottish bishop. Say that five times in your head. Just try it. 6th century Scottish bishop. And uh, it was reported that he had performed a miracle in his younger days. And so here's how the story went. And you'll see why this picture fits fits into that in just a minute. So Blaine, as a youth, or as a young man, he was serving at his church. And he was put in charge of watching over the lamps in the church one night when they were celebrating some saint's festival. And uh, so they were out singing. You know, the congregation was singing. They want to make sure the lamps don't go out overnight. So they put Blaine in charge of that. Well, while he was watching over the lamps, and I don't know what they expected him to do, but eventually, whether they were on wicks or oil, I don't know, but eventually they all went out. And so what could Blaine do? What could he do? Well, Blaine prayed, and then the story goes that fire sparkled from his fingertips like flint when it struck, and he was able to relight all of the fires, and uh, everyone was all happy with that. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about what that story for just a second. Did Blaine perform a miracle? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm rather skeptical of it, as probably all of you are as well, for a couple of reasons. For one, if you build up enough static electricity, you can get sparks from your fingertips. Probably most of you have experienced that from time to time and even tortured others with that ability. And for another thing, we only have Blaine's word to go by, right? There's nobody there to witness it. All they know is, yeah, the fires are still burning. And then he comes up with this story. Oh, yeah, they went out, but then I was able to shoot sparks from my hand and, and restart them. And it may very well be, as happens a lot in church history, that that story was just completely invented in later years by people who venerated him and wanted him to be uh, recognized as a saint by the Roman Catholic Church, which requires that you have performed a miracle. So that's also a possibility. Uh, the bottom line is that I would be very skeptical of, of Blaine's claim to uh, miraculous powers there. But the miracle that we're going to talk about today is on much surer ground for a couple reasons. One being that there were other witnesses to what Jesus just did, as you heard Jenny just read. And most importantly, this miracle is recorded in Holy Scripture, which means that we can be 100% confident that it occurred. So let's take a look at this text more closely. The story begins with a humble, normal, everyday circumstance. Jesus attends a wedding. Look again at verses 1 and 2 with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee... And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the story begins with giving us a little bit of a setting in time on the third day. Now that probably refers to being the third day after what had just come prior to that. And just in case you didn't know what came right before that is that Jesus met one of his disciples named Nathaniel. So it was probably the third day since that happened. And this miracle, we're told, takes place at a wedding in Cana which was a small town not far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Now, it's likely that this wedding was uh, the wedding of a close friend or relative of Jesus, since both his mother and himself were invited. And it appears from the way the story is written that Mary was actually helping with the wedding. And it mentions that his disciples were also invited, which at this point 
consisted of only five men. So there was Andrew, there was Simon Peter, there was Nathaniel, Philip, and then one that hadn't been named yet. But before I rush on to the next part of the story, I want you guys to really pay attention to an important detail. That Jesus was invited to a wedding and he went. Think about the timing of this wedding. So at this point, John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. That means at this point, John the Baptist has testified to other people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the one we're expecting. The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove after he came up out of the water at his baptism, testifying that he had been anointed with the Holy Spirit and was indeed the Christ. And then to top it all off, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus's public ministry was now getting started. He was gathering disciples. As I mentioned, he had five at this point and he was preparing for, excuse me, what he would do next, which of course was a large program of teaching, preaching, healing, and so forth. So Jesus was beginning his ministry and he was invited to a wedding, just a very normal everyday activity. Now, Think about Christ's ministry for a second. Would you agree, and if you don't agree, then I'm I'm going to disregard your opinion. Wouldn't you agree that Jesus' ministry was the absolutely most important ministry in the history of mankind? And there is not even a close second, right? Nobody can claim, man, my ministry, it was just barely under Jesus' importance. Nobody would dare to say that. If they would, we'd, of course, call them a fool. So Jesus is going, entering into the most important ministry in the history of the world, and when he's invited to a wedding, he goes to the wedding. Now, don't you think it would have been more important for Jesus to spend that time studying more, getting prepared to teach and preach, teaching his disciples, gathering the rest of the disciples, because he only had five at this point of the 12 that he would eventually get? Wouldn't it be more important for Jesus to be preparing for or starting his public ministry? Well, those questions really carry with them a false presupposition. And the false presupposition is that ministry only consists, only consists of what we would consider ministerial activities, like preaching, teaching, healing, counseling, that kind of thing. Now, all of those activities were essential parts of Christ's ministry, but there was more to it than just those things. For Jesus, and therefore what should be for us all of life, was ministry, in the sense that he was loving God and loving others in every activity of life. Even though he was the most important preacher that ever existed, he did not conduct a frantic ministry, feeling the need to justify the usage of every minute of his day, feeling the need to put aside all the normal pleasantries and enjoyments of life. Every part of his life was ministry. He ministered by spending time with friends and family. He ministered by living his life to love God and love others. And he was glorifying God by honoring this bride and groom and by joining with others to celebrate the blessing of marriage. So when you think about living for the Lord, don't just think about activities like prayer and Bible study and church attendance. Think about expressing the love and the glory of God to those around you in the natural rhythms and routines of life. And thank the Lord for that beautiful example he gave us. So Jesus attends a wedding, and while he's there, the wine for the guests runs out. So now we get to the situation that precipitates this miracle. Jesus and his disciples, they're enjoying themselves, feasting and drinking with all these other friends and relatives, celebrating this joyous occasion. 
when a problem comes up. So look again at verses 3 to 5 with me. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, Jewish weddings in those days, I can't speak for currently because I didn't do that research. <laughs> Is Steve Vance here? He'd be able to tell me. Steve, Steve, do Jewish weddings still go seven days? Okay, so they still do. So back then, as, as with now, Jewish weddings would go for seven days, seven days of celebrating this great occasion. And the bride and groom were expected to provide food and wine for all of the guests over these seven days. And running out of wine would have been socially devastating, horribly embarrassing. Just imagine the groom and bride having to start off their married life with everyone's memory of their wedding feast being that they ran out of wine. These guys didn't plan well. They're not generous. They don't have it together. How rude. So when the wine ran out, Mary told Jesus about it. Now, there's no reason for us to think that Mary was expecting Jesus to perform a miracle. It's most natural just to think that Mary was going to Jesus because he was her firstborn son. She had a lot of confidence in his wisdom and resourcefulness. So it was a matter of, okay, I've got a problem. I'll tell Jesus about it, and, and he'll come up with a solution for us. As a matter of fact, since verse 11 tells us that this was the first of his signs, that means that Jesus had never performed a miracle up to this point. So Mary tells Jesus, we have this problem, and Jesus gives this shocking response. At least I think it sounds shocking to most of us. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, you may have heard people say, explain this by saying that woman was a common way for uh, Jewish adults in that day to refer to their mothers. But that's actually not the case. Uh, I, I discovered a New Testament scholar, Andreas Kostenberger. He said that referring to your mother by this title, woman, actually is without parallel in Gre Greco-Roman or Jewish literature. So we don't, we don't know of any other example of somebody do, calling their mother woman. Nobody that lived anyway. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, we can be absolutely certain that Jesus was not being either rude or disrespectful. As a matter of fact, he used that same term when he was hanging on the cross right near his death. And he saw the Apostle John and his mother at the foot of the cross. And he gave his mother into the care of the Apostle John. He said the same term, woman, behold your son. And then son, behold your mother. So Jesus was certainly not being rude or disrespectful. Uh, the Net Bible suggests that it may have indicated that a new relationship between Jesus and Mary existed now that he had begun his public ministry. Maybe a little bit of a way of putting some distance between him and her is to say, you know, you're no longer in the place of my mother now that I'm beginning this public ministry. Things are going to change. But either way, it was certainly not respectful or rude because Christ all of his life followed all of God's commandments, including to honor his father and mother. So we can put that aside. Okay, so it wasn't rude. Woman, when the South, we might say, ma'am. But this question is still just hanging out there and very strange. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I read that this phrase, what does this have to do with me, which is literally, what is it to me and to you, is a Hebrew idiom, which means basically, what is this thing you're concerned about? have to do with me? What, what concern is it of mine? So again, it still sounds a little bit rude, right? I mean, if someone came to you asking for help and you said, what business is that of mine? You'd be a little bit put off, I think. 
So I think that we have to consider the second part of that statement in order to understand the sense of this question. So after he said, what does this have to do with me? Then he added, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's also translated time in some versions. And that same phrase actually pops up a few other times in the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 7 in John, they're nearing the Feast of Booths when all the adult males would be expected to come to Jerusalem. And Jesus' brothers said, Jesus, you ought to go up there and make a big public display because, you know, if you're the Messiah, you need to make everybody aware of it. And the Bible says that they were saying this somewhat mockingly because they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And when they said that to him, he said, no, my, my hour has not yet come. Now, later he did go, but he went in a way that was more quiet and not so public. Then, in the end of chapter 7 and also in chapter 8, there were two times when Jesus' enemies wanted to arrest him, and it says that they were not able to because his hour or his time had not yet come. So this time or this hour that he's talking about is the period of time including his arrest, trials, suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. In other words, Christ's hour refers to his exaltation as the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, the culmination of his earthly life and ministry. So what Jesus is really telling Mary is that his ministry will be dictated by the Father's timetable and not by hers. It's possible also that he's letting Mary know that he had already decided to help and that he would do it in the way that he chose rather than in response to her prompting. But the bottom line is that he certainly wasn't willing to be forced into some public manifestation of his identity on someone else's terms, even if that someone else was his own mother. Now, to you and me, I think reading this, it sounds like Jesus is basically saying, no, be gone. You know, I've got nothing to do with this. But Mary didn't receive it that way. Mary actually apparently understood this to say, okay, you're going to do it your own way, but you are going to help. Because then she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. So she is expecting Jesus to do something to help, even though that phraseology sounds a little bit weird. Must have been the look in his eyes or the tone of his voice that told her that he was still going to help, despite those words that may have indicated otherwise. So then we get to the climax. Jesus changes water into wine. I was reminded as I was reading this story, I was reminded of an event in December of 2019. Fairly recent memory, but because it was pre-COVID, probably sounds like a decade ago. Here at FBC, we had a kids musical program and then afterwards, I was in charge of organizing a Christmas party, a kind of a low-key outside Christmas party for the church. We call it a very merry Christmas party. Hopefully, you all have fond memories of that, because I'm going to bring up one negative. <laughs> At that Christmas party, we were providing hot dogs for everyone. We had hot chocolate. We had s'mores. We had cider. There was fire. It was contained. There was fire. It was very festive. Just a great time. But very early into this event, the hot dogs ran out. So there were dozens, scores, hundreds, thousands, I don't know. There were lots of people who didn't get any hot dogs. Now, in the moment, because the event was fairly short time, we actually didn't have any way to do anything about it. You know, even if we'd sent someone out to buy some more, there wouldn't have been time to get them back and, and get them cooked in time. But I'll tell you this, in the midst of that small crisis, one thing I never thought of was to ask the Lord to transform the marshmallows into hot dog franks. That never occurred to me. So I can assure you that when Mary said they have no wine, nowhere in her mind was the thought, why don't you just change water into wine? That was not on her mind. But that's, of course, exactly what happened, a miraculous transformation. So look at verses 6 through 10 with me again. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus decided to do something to help, and he went about it in a way that was still surprisingly humble and under the radar. He did a miracle, but he didn't draw attention to himself except among a few people. His solution to this embarrassing situation was a behind-the-scenes miracle. He doesn't steal the spotlight from the bride and groom, showing his sensitivity and grace in that matter. So he sees these six stone jars that are set aside for Jewish rites of purification. The Jews would, uh, there was complicated washing of hands, washing of utensils and pots and that kind of thing as people were coming in and, and preparing to eat. So he saw those water pots sitting aside, and he told the servants, fill those with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he says, okay, take some of that water and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast would have been kind of an official title of a guy who was sort of overseeing the festivities and making sure that everyone got their wine and their food. And then, of course, they took it to the master of the feast, and then you get this shocking attestation to the miracle. Master of the feast goes whoa, this is the best wine. What is going on here? So he calls the bridegroom over here who never speaks in this whole time. Oh, I almost, ooh, don't say that. Yes. He, uh, I was going to say he was preparing for married life. That's not true. That's not, that's not true. My wife lets me talk a lot. Uh, so he calls the bridegroom over and he says, this, this, is just, this is just really weird. You know, the usual process is that you Serve the best wine, and then people, as people drink, their taste buds get dulled, and then you get bring out the wine that's lower quality. But you brought out the best wine, so that's really surprising. So think about what just happened there. At some point after the servants poured water into the stone jars, but before the master of the feast had tasted it, the water had become wine. Now, we've heard this story probably hundreds of times. So it's easy for a story that's so familiar to just become humdrum. Uh, yeah, you know, okay, Jesus changed water into wine. Big deal. But guys, what Jesus did is, is astounding, mind-boggling, mind-blowing mind and mind-boggling. It does both of those. It's awe-inspiring. Jesus never touched the water. And when he had the servants pour the water in, there's no recording of Jesus praying Oh, Lord, Father, turn this water into wine. There's no record of any incantation. He didn't run around the house three times or toss dust into the air. He just said, pour water and then draw it out. By the force of his divine will, he commanded water to turn into wine. And I want you to think about what that means chemically for just a second. I had two semesters of it at Laterno University, so I'm qualified to speak on this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I had to Google it like anybody else. <laughs> so Jesus commanded a metamorphosis of water into wine. Wine, today anyway, I can't speak for them, but wine by and large consists of 86% water, 12% ethanol, the particular alcohol that's in wine, and then 2% a bunch of other things that are hard to pronounce. Now, as you know, water, a water molecule consists of two hydrogen atoms, hydrogen atoms and one oxygen, H2O. We're all familiar with that. 
ethanol is C2H6O. So that means that Jesus willed the creation of two additional carbon atoms and four additional hydrogen atoms for 12% of the water molecules in these jars. Can you imagine that? He willed the creation of these molecules, uh, these atoms, and they're joining to these water molecules to change water physically into wine. Guys, this is just, I mean, it is beyond our comprehension what he just did there effortlessly. He didn't have to work up some emotion. He did, like I said, he didn't mention any prayer. There was no incantation. There was no special touching of the water. Simply by the force and power and authority of his divine will, he commanded water to be turned into wine. Uh, absolutely amazing. Now, I will say, I discovered that skeptics have an answer for this. So in the first century, around the time Jesus was living... There was a guy by the name of Hero of Alexandria. And Hero of Alexandria was a great engineer. Shout out to engineers. He was a great engineer, and one of the things he created were these jars that you could pour water into and wine into, and it would keep it separate. And you could choose whether to just pour out water or just pour out wine or pour out a mixture of the two. So there are skeptics who believe that Jesus learned the secret of these jars and he and his disciples engineered some, and that's what they did to impress all the guests. Now think about what that would have required, though. <laughs> so here comes Jesus and his five disciples. There are six of them, so it's the right number. Six of them, and they're each carrying these massive 30-gallon jars. That's kind of strange. You're coming to my wedding. You've got some empty jars. Okay. So then he would have had to have arranged them to be filled with wine, unknown to anyone else. And then he would have had to have the servants know how to pour the jars in such a way that they get wine out instead of water. And then he would have had to make sure that none of the servants told anybody about what just happened. Now, I think we'll all agree that is completely ridiculous and completely contradicts the details of this story. One of the biggest things being that Jesus didn't even trumpet this miracle to all the guests at the wedding. He was aiming for a much smaller crowd in this case, as we'll see in just a few minutes. So Jesus commanded water to turn into wine, and it miraculously followed his command. It was not a party trick. It wasn't a feat of engineering or a publicity stunt. It was a genuine miracle of creation and transformation. And that brings up this question. Why did Jesus do this miracle? God does not dispense miracles willy-nilly. They always have a purpose. So why was this one done? Well, verse 11 gives us the answer. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, we don't know whether or not Jesus had this plan all along or if he simply seized the opportunity to perform this miracle. It may be that Jesus saw it as an opportunity to point to the barrenness of current Jewish religion in contrast to the abundance and life and joy of his own ministry. In Jewish thought, wine was a symbol of joy and celebration, and Old Testament prophets pictured the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow freely. For instance, Amos 9 says, Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall, shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. An abundance of wine was a sign of prosperity because it meant, of course, a good harvest of grapes. It was a sign of peace because you can only cultivate a vineyard and make wine when you are at peace and not at war. 
So both of those would speak to Christ's reign being a peaceful, joyous, joyous and abundant one. In addition to that, there is the vast abundance of wine that he created, 120 to 180 gallons, making it obvious that his reign would be one of prosperity. And there's also a reference to John 1.14, because John says that he manifested his glory. And in John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Andreas Kostenberger comments, It surely is significant that this revelation of God's glory in Jesus consists not in a spectacular display of power, but in a quiet behind-the-scenes work that remained largely unnoticed and impacted only a select few. Do you see the glory of Christ in this little episode? He met a real need, but he did it in a way that didn't distract from the wedding. He manifested the glory of humility, not trying to bring everyone's attention on himself. He manifested the glory of grace by doing something for someone who didn't earn it or deserve it. This, this new couple apparently had not planned well enough to feed and <laughs> feed and water, I was going to say, to provide wine for all their guests. So in a sense, they deserve to suffer the consequences of their poor planning, but Jesus provided for them anyway. And the particular glory that is most evident in this passage is the glory of his mastery over the world of nature. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As the creator of all nature, he has command and mastery over all nature. And he manifested his glory to authenticate his identity as the creator and his identity as the Messiah. And the result was that his disciples believed in him. Scholar Michael Horton points out that the particular form of the Greek word for believe emphasizes a transfer of trust from themselves to God in Christ. They already had at least an infant belief in Jesus as the Messiah. That was what Andrew told Peter. We found the Messiah. Come join us. But now they're moving to trust him with their lives and their eternal destiny. Toward the end of the Gospel of John, he describes his purpose for the entire Gospel and he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Lord's purpose in this miracle was to display his glory and move his disciples to believe more deeply and more profoundly in him. And the Holy Spirit's purpose in recording this passage in the book of John is the same. A display of the glory of Christ moving people to believe in him, to trust in him. The main message that this story proclaims is that Jesus is Lord of nature. There are many other examples in the New Testament where Jesus exercises mastery over nature. He stills a storm with a verbal command. He walks on water. He multiplies bread to feed thousands of people. And all of them point to the same truth, that Jesus as Lord of nature is the divine Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah. This revelation that Jesus is Lord of nature should motivate you to respond in the same way that the disciples responded. Believe in him. Put your faith in him. That's the most important application of this passage. Since Jesus showed that he is the Christ, the Son of God, he can save you from your sins. If you trust in him, he will forgive you 
He will wash you clean. He will clothe you in his righteousness and bring you into the family of God forever. He can change you from a slave to sin to a slave of righteousness, just as he commanded the transformation of that water into wine. He can change you from a rebel against God to a beloved child of God. He can change you from a condemned man or woman bound for eternal punishment in hell to a justified man or woman fully accepted forever by God the Father, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is Lord, Lord of nature, so believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. Now, if you are a believer, which I trust that most people in here are, I encourage you to be strengthened in your faith in Christ. If Jesus can command water to be transformed into wine, then he can solve any problem that you're facing. He isn't puzzled or scared or intimidated or confused by anything that's going on in your life. I'm not saying that Jesus will solve all of your problems in this life. That is coming in the next life, but not in this one. But I am saying, as I heard from Pat Camerata years ago, that once you have Jesus, everything in life is manageable because your eternal destiny is now secure. Your place in the family of God is now secure. You are forever beloved and accepted. And you are, excuse me, and he is with you now and forever. All of us have and will suffer pain and loss and fear and confusion. All of us will face problems that we don't have answers for. But we can manage it because Jesus is Lord. We can keep pressing in and going back to the source of our hope and our comfort the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we are cared for and loved by the eternal King of kings. As I close in prayer in just a minute, I do want to invite you to come forward to pray with our prayer team. If you have any, any burden that's weighing on your mind, anything that you're struggling with, any problem that you're facing, they would be delighted to spend time in prayer with you. I urge you, do not leave this place with the same burdens you walked in with. Make sure that you share that and that you have someone come alongside with you to share the grace and the love of God with you. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, anyone up here would also be overjoyed to talk to you about trusting Christ and experiencing eternal life in him. Let's stand. And prayer team, you can come forward. Gracious God, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of nature, the Messiah, the Son of God, our loving King, in his name, we come to you, Lord, and we praise you for this time that we have had to gather together as a body. We praise you for this manifestation of your presence through singing and through your word. We praise you, O oh God, for the grace you pour upon us moment by moment. And I pray that your spirit would convince any who do not know you of their sinfulness and their lostness and the open invitation of the Savior to wrap his arms around them and save them from their sin. Lord, I pray that you would give strength and faith once again to your people. I pray that you would renew them in your love. I pray, O oh God, that you would move them with the energy of your spirit to go about their rhythms and routines, sharing the love of God with those around them. Thank you, Lord God, for your body, the church. Thank you for your presence. Most of all, O oh God, thank you that you are our Savior. I pray for a special measure of grace on all those who have gathered this morning. In your holy name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.